Hello and welcome to the Snow Brains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a mountain guide, an Alaska heli ski guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains. And when I first started ski bumming back in 2001, I had just enough money to get by. At some point, I did the math and realized that it was my car that was eating up the bulk of my finances. So I got rid of the damn thing. I didn't have a car from the ages of 22 until 40. I didn't have a car for 18 years. And it was absolute bliss. My guest today is Sophia Schwartz. Sophia is a former U.S. ski team member who competed in mogul skiing. She's a badass free skier who stomps double backflips and has skied the Grand Teton. Sophia is a mentor at the Coombs Outdoor Foundation, where they focus on getting people of color into the outdoors. Sophia gave a killer talk at the Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop this fall, and it spurred me to get her on the show because of her obvious strength in mindfulness. Hello, Sophia. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for having me, Miles. You're very welcome. Stoked, stoked to have you on the show here. Yeah, and it's a Friday. Thank goodness. So I guess, you know, I, I like to always ask people, have you skied yet this season? You know, I've gone once and it was terrible. And <laughs> I went by myself for some real like secret training to get ready for a trip I have coming up. But I went ice skating the morning before with my friend Joey Sackett. And that ice skating is really good right now. And the skiing ah. is horrible. Yeah. Okay. And you're in the Tetons right now, right? Okay. Yes. It's, it's only mid-November, so uh, and it seems to be starting a little late this year. I actually skied Park City today. I uh, just did the groomer a few times, and it was remarkably fun. I was. It felt very good to be on a flying couch again. Ooh, fabulous. Yes. So great. Well, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to do this podcast a little, little differently than I usually do. Sophia, you recently gave an incredibly mindful talk at the Wyoming Avalanche Workshop uh, only less than a month ago. And in that talk, you brought up some topics that are really close to my heart. So mindfulness and meaning in the mountains, why we take so many risks in the backcountry, the aggressiveness of the backcountry culture in the Western USA, and our ferocious suicide problem that we have in the Intermountain West, or as sociologists call it, the suicide belt. It's crazy to think, you know, you and I, we live in the suicide belt. And also how we can all live a meaningful life in these mountains and these mountain towns. So to start off, though, really quick, uh, I want to qualify you for our for our listeners because that's what you do on these podcasts. And so you're, I, I just think you're one of the most badass skiers around. I, I, I've spent the last two days watching your ski videos, and, and my mind was blown. So, but to qualify it more, you know, normal circumstances, you were on the U.S. ski team for three years as a bump skier, uh, which is incredible. And you are now a free skier and ski mountaineer. You skied the Grand Teton for Kit Delorier, which I think is a cool example of your mountaineering uh, prowess. And Kit is a legend, right? The first person to ever ski all the seven summits. And she actually even came on this podcast and we were honored by that. And, and Sophia also is ridiculous in the air. She can throw, you know, big cork sevens on the regular and even recently stomped a double backflip, which uh, bends my mind. I've never even thought about doing that. 
And you're currently a fitness coach. You work in a physical therapy office. You're obviously a free skier and you mentor young people at Coombs at Door. And we even just talked about Sister Summit, which we'll talk about too. And so you're, you've got your hands in everything. You're, you're into everything. And I love that. So again, the reason we're doing this podcast is I heard your amazing talk at the Wyoming Avalanche Workshop. And so really quick, could you kind of describe your talk and tell us what the title, what, what did you call that talk? What was it about? Wow. Thanks so much for all the kind words. And yeah, definitely a bit of a a junk show with all these things going on. So (laughs) uh, thanks for just taking the time to chat. Yeah, I actually pitched this talk to Ysoft this summer. Um, Liz King runs that event and she was amazing in kind of hearing me out. And I asked her if I could take some time to put together a presentation called Meaning in the Mountains with the idea that kind of pragmatically using different types of meaning was a different way to look at how we spend time in the mountains and assess the risks we take. And truthfully, I started to do it for myself. I had had all these ideas kind of in my brain, having conversations with friends at the dinner table and on the skin track. And I really wanted to give myself a big scary deadline to have to sit and put these thoughts together. So Liz said yes, which was amazing. And then I was like, oh no, I actually have to get this done. (laughs) Um, And so being able to put it in a talk really was my own personal journey in trying to keep myself safe in the mountains because I'm in it. You know, I think all of the things you've listed above are deeply tied to risk. And I've seen the consequences, not only for myself, but for my friends. Yeah, I think this talk was just a way for me to really take some time to think deeply about how I show up, not just in the mountains, but as a a person in the world. Yeah, I mean, really, it's kind of, you know, why do we take these risks in the backcountry? And what is the meaning of it? How does it help us? How does it hurt us? And I love that and your vulnerability with it. And then, you know, that combined with your that your skiing ability, you know, to show people that you can be vulnerable and be a badass skier. I love all of this. So uh, let's let's just start with a funny story because I thought you started this talk with your wake up call. Could you tell us the story of that wake up call? Because it's it's pretty impressive and and terrifying. I had a big wake up call as I was leaving my mogul skiing career and moving to Jackson. I found myself in the beautiful city of Boston with all of my ski stuff. And I made uh, the very questionable decision to ski down an escalator in the Portage yeah, how, Square. How long was this escalator? Because It's like, unbelievably long. It's yeah, sort of like mind-blowingly long. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a normal. It's like a supersized escalator. <laughs> um, and at the bottom, I totally blew up and very luckily was able to like tuck and roll um, sliding across the floor. But when I stood up, my back was bleeding and I had slid over a bolt in the ground and put oh. just sort of this unbelievable gash into my back. It's hard to describe. You know, oh. I did show the terrifying photo to the saw audience. But yeah, I was so lucky. I didn't hit any of my internal organs. I didn't slice my spinal cord. Like to quote my t- Monty Python, it was like, but a flesh wound. But yeah. it was probably like a five inch gash four inches deep where you can see all of my internal organs. Oh <laughs> it was gnarly. No, I mean, it looked like, just for our listeners, for, for the description, which they don't need much more of, but it looked like it was the kind of gash that could have affected your kidney or something. It was profound uh, and, and you know very deep and scary. And it was such a wake-up call because I think I had felt like I had a really good risk assessment in my mogul skiing career. I was definitely like inspired to be one of the women like pushing my tricks and trying to progress the sport. And I felt like I had that balance of knowing when to go for things and when to back off. 
but the escalator incident really like showed me that like I'm so capable of swallowing my fear and doing something that I knew was wrong um, and still doing it. So having to sit with that and kind of reframe that as I moved into backcountry skiing was terrifying to be like, oh no, I have that. Yeah, I too am vulnerable and human and not invincible, um, which I think a lot of us end up in that mentality, especially when you get away with situation after situation in the backcountry, like, well, nothing bad happened there. So we'll probably be fine today too, which is not the case. So you ended your, your you were on the US ski team as a mogul skier, and then you moved to Jackson, I think, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in about two, 2017, if I'm not mistaken. How did you pick Jackson and where, where were you coming from? Jackson has incredible female mentorship. And oh. I was very purposeful in coming here. I was living in Steamboat Springs and Park City at the time, kind of affiliated with the US team. And I knew I always wanted to get into big mountain skiing. I always saw it as the next step after my mogul career to really like connect deeper with the mountains. And I knew I was leaving this controlled training environment where I had a coach and video review and all the support into kind of a community that was really hard to figure out how do you learn anything about the backcountry. So I was kind of between Salt Lake, Whistler, and Jackson, looking at sort of these hubs of progression and access to the mountains. And Jackson had the small town vibe where you knew you were going to be able to find some mentors. And I was very lucky as a young mogul skier. I lived in Sun Valley for a while growing up. And the legendary Lindsay Dyer, you know, at one point in time, gave me oh, yeah. her phone number and was like, hey, when you're ready for the switch, like, give me a call. Um, so I did. I called Lindsay and she was like, Jackson's the spot. I had a really good friend, Veronica Paulson, who was living here as well. And so they really welcomed me to town. And then I pretty much just emailed every pro skier I could think of in the community to be like, hey, can I pick your brain? How do I get advice? And yeah, it's really like panned out into like an amazing support system. Wow. Well done. Cause that was kind of my next question was what, you know, what was your goal in moving to Jackson and that, you know, maybe there's more to it, but that's a huge goal is to come there because there's all this female mentorship. Was there anything else? That was it. I mean, the mountains and the people just feeling like it was a place where I could learn and grow. And you hadn't done a lot of backcountry skiing before then. How many, how many days had you skied in the backcountry? Ooh, I think I had skied less than 10 days in the backcountry before moving to Jackson. At the end of my mogul career, I had taken my Avi One and had, you know, wow. done a few hut trips with friends and had kind of some access in middle school. Actually, my middle school had us do a little bit of avalanche education. So was really like thankful to have that framework and knowing I needed it before coming here. But really, I was super green. Um, had just smashed bumps and skied the resort and the half pipe and <laughs> all of the the freestyle events and bounce. And obviously you were very accomplished, but I think for our listeners, it's it's a, a cool term that I use a lot with my personal journey is uh, self-actualized. Um, and that is a really good definition of it. You were like, this is what I'm going to do now. And here I go doing it. You know, it's uh, you don't, sometimes you don't even need that much planning. Just go and do it. I love that. So after you moved to Jackson, you wanted to figure out how do I pursue my new passion for backcountry skiing and not kill myself? Can you tell me a little bit more about this and, and how did you achieve this, this goal so far? Yeah. Um, well, I think I came into it with from an interesting place because even though I was not really a backcountry skier, I had already lost 
many friends in the mountains. And so I think one of the differences I see in myself compared to a lot of like entry level backcountry skiers is knowing that the consequences are real. And I think that there's sort of um, a balance between thinking that it won't happen to you and having this like abstract pain where, yeah, I lost best friends in avalanches already in a lot of different wow. ways from a friend, you know, dying on a inbound slide at Palisade Whoa. to a friend falling into a crevasse in Chile. So I had a long list and I had seen stuff, you know, even in my mobile career, I had seen the consequences of traumatic brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. So it was all very real. And I think that was like kind of unique of being like, I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I know what can go wrong. And so I need to get educated. And so I really tried to jump into education, taking courses, and again, seeking out those mentors, but always knowing a little bit what could really happen. I am going to stay focused and I'm having a strong emotional response. Um, that yeah. I lost a friend this week. Uh, mm. ski patroller, yeah, a ski patroller in Telluride. And she crashed her car. I just I just heard of this. Would you want to share her name? Is yeah, that okay? so her name was Elise. And I worked with her uh, helicopter ski guiding in Alaska. And she was yeah. a sweetheart. And she was amazing. And she was great. And I don't know all the details. but. Uh, yeah, it's a car accident and it's, you know, kind of after one of their patrol refreshers and I'm just, I'm still devastated. I'm still not I, like, yeah. I was very angry and I was very frustrated because it also sounds like she might not have been wearing her seatbelt. You know, I, I don't know all the details again, but it's just, ah, oh, and, and, you know, so now I'm starting to kind of fade from that and just being more sad and, so I, so I get it. You know, I also have lost yeah. a lot of friends in the mountains and, uh, but, um, and that's okay. I think the sad things like what we need to talk about, right. Because like this trauma response is real and like that feeling of like, how could this happen? And that want that like desire for control of like, if she was just wearing a seatbelt or if she just left yeah. five minutes earlier and sort of yes. like that pain is so real and like, we so rarely like sit in it. So I'm so sorry for your loss. And like, what you're going through right now is like confusing and hard and like to oh, be, yeah. 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 And it's crazy, but I, I do like that you, and I'm doing, you know, the learning how to do this too. You harness that coming into this place where you knew this is now something I'm going to get involved in. Right. So my friends have already died in avalanches, you know, including mine. Um, if you've taken an avalanche class, they might've talked about it. Mike Kazanji was one of my close friends from uh, mm. the Cal ski team. And he died in that avalanche in 2013 on the day after Christmas on Pucker Face. And yeah. you've heard of this, you know? And so uh, we're, I'm getting off topic now, but, you know, it's just, you know, when you have these type of losses, you know what the reality can be. If you can harness this in the way that you have mentally, you could really use it as a tool to think of, you know, as, as you know, where, where we started this whole conversation was, how do I pursue my passion for the backcountry? And not kill myself, you know, and it's yeah. not, it's not a simple, there's no direct path. Avalanche science is not an exact science. So it's very complicated. So I appreciate you because I found your talk so valuable, insightful, humbling, vulnerable, which I think we need more of in the mountains and uplifting. Um, so, so now I'm going to do the awkward thing of kind of walking you through your own talk that you just gave. Um, it's because I think that's, I just thought your talk was so profound and it really affected me. Oh, thank so, you. 
Yeah, so you're welcome. And you can see how we have a connection here already, right? With this yeah. mountains and our, our, our attempt to not have more loss out there, uh, whether it be ourselves or others. Um, so kind of let's start at the beginning, because um, I thought your perspectives on this were, were very intelligent. Um, why, do, why do we take risks in the backcountry? Why do we even do it? Yeah, I think that in my own career, I really found value in taking risks. And I think especially as a mogul skier, you know, I really grew and found self-confidence and learned how to work hard through like chasing these big intangible goals and like learning how to do backflips. I think especially, you know, I'm like a five foot two woman, you know, I think that learning to like try hard and like learning, you know, to like move past that rational voice in your head and do something that you don't know if it's going to be successful is incredibly empowering. And so I think that taking risks is so important and so beautiful and helps us grow as humans. And we're not going to learn things without trying and failing. And I think what's so hard is we learn these sort of skills and we see it in kind of our lives of how powerful risk can be. But the backcountry is just such a different environment and it's so uncontrollable that I think we as like humans are like looking for that answer and we're like looking how to like outsmart, you know, this incredibly complex and uncertain science of snow and mountains and wind and everything else that goes into that. And so for me, I think finding that balance of being like, how do I continue to like show up in these spaces um, and acknowledging that I don't want risk to disappear. And I think it's so important to us. And yet also like, how do I reframe why the mountains are meaningful to me? Because that belief that education will make me like perfect and, you know, impenetrable to these consequences is just false. And so that was a big wake up call of, I can't think myself out of these situations. So I need to totally reframe how I'm even approaching my like approach to the mountains. I love all that. And then the heuristics and the human factors just get out of control also, right? So I think that which balances a lot of what you just talked about. You know, we have this meaning on one side and then sort of the, you know, heuristic, if we want to use that word, or just overconfidence on the other side. Um, and so, you know, that's that's something else I'd love to talk about. And you yeah. you brought up in your talk how society places more value on certain types of experiences in mountain towns. And you listed you know, adrenaline, physical and mental toughness, thrill, growth and challenge, seeing your capabilities, doing hard things and pushing our limits, um, which I think it's true, right? That's what mountain towns really value. You know, they want to see you pushing it all the way. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen the comment, like, point them straight downhill, you wimp, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd love to hear more. Um, can you please say more about these topics that are mountain cultures prize so highly? Yeah. I think that when we talk about culture, it's so important to like pull yourself out of it, right? Because like I'm a white woman who like grew up in Telluride, right? Like I have been oh, wow. embedded in ski culture, right? I've lived in like Telluride, Sun Valley, Steamboat, Park City, Waterville, New Hampshire, and Jackson. Like I'm in it, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that like being able to like name this culture for what it is, you know, like it is very much like a white culture. It is very much like a Western culture. It is very much like a settler colonialist culture. When we talk about like conquering the mountains, you know, that is a way we look at nature rather than, you know, like maybe a more indigenous perspective 
of like being harmonious with the mountains or like humbled by the mountains. And so I think we're so deep in it that we like forget we even have a culture and that we are sort of like perpetuating it. So even just taking a moment to step out and like look at it like for what it is, I have found to be really helpful. And I feel so lucky in that because I've really gotten to do it through like being a social justice advocate, you know? And I think in many ways, like pursuing and studying other cultures has really like helped me see in different ways that like predominantly like a Western settler colonialist culture is harmful, not only to like oppressed folks and marginalized communities, but in fact to like ourselves. And so I think having this framework of like collective liberation in my like work as a social justice advocate has allowed me to then come back and look at like my mountain culture and be like, wait, how do I learn these same like questions? And how do I reframe what I've always assumed to be the only way and like truth because I'm so embedded in it? And so, yeah, I've had so many mentors in that from, you know, my best friend, Vanessa Chavarriaga and our friend Juliana Garcia and amid, like amazing skiers like Ellen Bradley. Like there's a long deep list of folks who I think have really inspired me on that journey. And then just, yeah, being my own, like kind of like self learner in it. I think, Cause I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, cause I've asked these questions so many times and had long discussions with folks and your ideology that our Western settler pioneer colonial culture has a lot to do with is because it does value pushing the limits, doing hard things, taking big risks. Uh, and that's really prevalent out here in the Mountain West. And, and I shouldn't even get into it, but I've I've been preaching a similar ideology for years around why we have problems with guns and obesity. Because mm. to really quickly say my idea, which is not based on any real science, just everything I've learned in my life, is you know, there used to be grizzly bears and mountain lions and wolves and bad people, and you needed guns. I mean, there's just there was no question in the pioneer West, you needed a gun, period. Um, and that has led to where we are now, where we have, you know, guns are killing, you know, the number one cause of, of childhood death right now. Is yeah. Um, and then obesity too. You know, I think that back then you needed to eat a lot of food to plow the field and farm and be a pioneer and, you know, hike these trails and be on wagon trains. And so big, you know, huge, heavy meals are normal for Americans, but you know, we don't do that anymore. Right. I, I haven't plowed a field ever. Uh, I don't know if anybody does anymore. We have tractors and things for that. And so, but we still eat a lot of food, right? And so we have this obesity problem potentially. So I, I think that there's a real congruency there in our ideologies, which I, I thought was really interesting. But yeah, it's, a- it's pervasive everywhere, right? I think that, like what's so hard about it, it's like the way you show up at work. It's the, like how you show up in your relationships with friends and romantic partners. And, you know, I think like that's the word, right? Like systemic, it's everywhere. And so I think like, these cultural issues we face, of course, they're in the mountains. Like that is part of, you know, just everywhere. Absolutely. You know, even made me think right now, especially of the logo of Wyoming, of the cowboy on the horse, bucking Broncos, like super extreme, pushing the limits, you know, it's like tattooed in our mental you know, awareness that, you know, if you're going to be out here, you better be awesome and extreme and radical yeah. you know and it's like and if not like beat it or you know whatever you know it's it's just it's yeah. really not cool to not be doing that yeah and i think for me too it's like holding truth in both right like the mountains for me offer this really like authentic healthy growth and risk and like empowerment and also you know i have to just admit that some of the risk taking i do and like pushing my tricks is trying to prove people wrong you know cuz this like 
society and this culture does not ever see me as like strong and capable. And it's really fun to blow people's minds. You know, like I love going bridge jumping and you'd be amazed at how many dudes walk up and are like, Hey, I know it looks like a big bridge. And if you're scared, like I promise it's okay. And so I'll like play into it and be like, Oh yeah, like this is terrifying. And then I'll go throw some flips off of it. And it's fun just to see like people's brains melt and like their expectations of you change, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. you're seeing that happen now outside of just like white women, but for like communities of color and like who we assume as like capable takes these reframes. And I think the mountains have been such an impactful way to show me that, but it's also like toxic. And I don't feel like I have value unless I'm proving people wrong. And so being able to come up with these mantras and be like, okay, like it's more important to prove myself safe than to prove somebody wrong in the mountains. Because it's true when I go shoot with like old school male photographers yeah, I feel horrible when I don't hit that cliff or don't ski something because I question the like snow stability. And I think that like internal strength of like having to say no, sometimes like I'm not strong enough to do it and I still make those mistakes. So setting myself up in a community that like honors that and like a community that like helps keep me safe has been my main priority in Jackson. And I feel so lucky to have so many like kick-ass mountain partners who can like hold that truth. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at my mentorship roles with skiing, you know, like with Vanessa and my friend Laura and these other things where people assume I'm a mentor, but really like they are my mentors and I am just trying to like relearn how to keep myself safe in the mountains by investing in people who see me in a different way. And to expand on that, I really liked how you talked about how you ski with people that you like as people, uh, not people who might get you further in the industry. And I think, again, we have some congruence there. So could you say more to that? I mean, you might've said all of it already, but I'd love to uh, hear any more thoughts you have. Definitely. I think I tried to structure my talk by sharing just some of my like funny rules. And Mm -hmm. I love having little rules and mantras because they help you kind of like hold true to that. And so the photo on the talk is like the skin track and everybody's super spaced out on the skin track. And I joke that I only ski with people I like as people. And it sounds absurd um, to say that out loud, but I've really skied with people for opportunity as well. And I think as trying to make it as a professional skier, there are times that you're like, whoa, I don't know if this person respects me. I don't know if we have the same risk tolerance, but like they got the ins and they like, I just want to ski them with them so they see I'm good enough to like get me a sponsorship and I realized that like that just puts me in these like dangerous risky scenarios and instead if I ski with people I like as people regardless if our objective works out I'm like fulfilled by that time and I find opportunities in skiing come when I'm like fulfilled and happy rather than always like grinding and always like clawing because when you reach that destination it's never what you think it's going to be. And it's always slightly disappointing and kind of the same in the mountains of like, if I can be present with my friends and like love just walking up hill, if we make it to the top, it's that much more special. And if we decide to bail, cause like the wind direction wasn't what we expected, like then I still had a great day. I, I really respect that and, and echo that in my own life. I think that I've I realized quite young, you know, when I was at Palisades Tahoe as a 22 year old and I wanted to become a pro skier, you know, I had the opportunity. There was all the big pros were there, like JT Holmes and Shane McConkey and CJ Johnson, like all these people were there. And I had opportunities to 
buddy up to them, but it would have been fake. And because they weren't my people, they weren't the people that I wanted to hang out with. And I think it was the same. I don't know if they respected me. I don't, I know they didn't have the same risk tolerance as me. Right. And so I always ended up, I don't ski with any pro skiers, you know, maybe once in a while, you know, my buddy Owen Leeper, because I just, I really want to ski with the people that I love, that I care about. And I have, I find so much more meaning in the mountains that way. And I, I, I have completely avoided that essentially and found my, totally my own track, which I think you are doing as well, even currently. Um, and so I, I yeah. really like that, your ideology on that. I really support that myself. And that's something that I've found. I've, I've really zigged when everybody else has zagged. And it did not help me get further in this industry. That is for damn sure. I've had a fight and claw for every inch of this. But I think that's, in my perspective, I thought that was kind of a cooler way to do it. And some of those mountain partners, like, what do you admire about them? Like, tell me a bit about like your favorite people to go out with and like what makes them special to you. You know, I think part of why I connected with you watching your video, you know, they're vulnerable. You know, I can go out to in the mountains with my friends and I can say to them, hey, how do you feel about avalanche conditions? Like, how are you feeling today? And they can be totally honest with me. And that might be something mm. you only get with close friends, right? So maybe I'm biased in my judgment on all this. But uh, but that, I think, is the biggest thing for me is, is when I go out with these people, they and they have similar risk tolerances to me. And they, you know, we have a lot of my I say I love you to my buddies all the time, right? And we have like a love out there. And we sharing this place in the mountains and we want to come home. We want to be safe. We want to do something cool if possible. But, you know, I think that our values have really aligned that, you know, let's, let's do something cool. Let's have some fun. Let's be safe. Let's be smart. And let's really take care of each other. I Mm -hmm. really care about you and what you're doing here today. And I know that you really care about me and what I'm doing here today. And that synergistic power is, is hard to deny. Yeah. And it's cool because like what I hear too is like your values are sort of like counterculture, right? Like I think it's really hard for men to be vulnerable. Like what does that even look like? What does that show up? Like how do you admit when you're uncertain about something when you've been told your whole life being 100% certain is the best thing that you can do, you know? Like Mm -hmm. it takes practice to like change that. And I think Mm -hmm. that like it's so cool to hear that because I think it can be freeing and liberating. And I think when you get to like have those moments of connection and sharing your hardship and building that community, it can be really special. And so, yeah, I love that. And I think like, have you found pushback from other partners in that? Like when you show up in your own vulnerable state, like how have you found like do people's like tough like barriers like break down over time or are people kind of just willing to jump into vulnerability when you present it? Not the latter. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, you know, people that I'm not close with who are mountain people and and there's people that we know in common even in Tahoe that I've been out in the mountains with. And, you know, I'll say stuff and they'd be like, whoa, like what a wimp, you know, like say that to my face. Hey, honestly, I'm not afraid of these topics, you know, and even just, you know, all the things and and, and I could go on a tangent here, too, but like all the things that are ingrained in macho male culture, you know, including homophobia and you know all these things it's just like it's bizarre to me because i think i innately was this way i think as a human being but i've watched a lot of brene brown if you're familiar with her on vulnerability and you know and i've I've done a lot of work uh you know especially since i met my my wife now in, in 2018 um i've put a lot of time in you know i know a lot about attachment styles and you know a lot of the psychology that i find very valuable and very valuable in the mountains and i've forced a lot of it on my good friends 
Uh, and so I think they were already good and now they're better. And I think I was already kind of good and now I'm better. And then when I come across, when I do hit the wall of that normal American male macho culture, boy, I'm turned off. Yeah. And it's crazy just how much more fun it makes the days out there, you know? And I think that like, we have this perceived notion that like, it's going to ruin skiing if we like get soft and being like, whoa, to get to be soft is like the best thing ever because then everything I do is like so authentic and so fun and you can still like freeze your toes off and like suffer and carry a like a heavy pack and also on the days that you don't want to do that and you thought you wanted to do it but something else in your life came up like to be able to share that with your friends is so cool and I know you wanted to talk about this but I think that's why in my talk I wanted to reference sort of the suicide rates in ski culture and in these mountain towns because what I see is that like our machismo aggressive ski culture has such serious consequences outside of the hills as well and I think you see so many people who are so bought into only finding meaning by being the hard charging rugged individual out there and then you know in their 40s and 50s they're alone and they don't have community and they can't ski as hard as they used to and they have you know maybe some other like mental health crises that they can't share vulnerably and it like leads to these consequences and so I think that like the reframe on culture is so important and that it helps everyone across the board And as a social justice advocate, right, I obviously really critique culture because I see the negative effects on marginalized communities and the barriers it puts up and the like unbelievable amount of harm. Um, But in my Wysaw talk, knowing that my audience was going to be primarily like white hardo mountain dudes, I wanted to like flip the script and be like, wow, this also causes you harm. And it's really only a tiny percent of people who like come out of this unscathed. And I think that like, that was just like a reframe I wanted to like present to our community. Yeah. So I, you know, Matt Ray of UNLV told the Freakonomics, he's a sociologist. He told Freakonomics Radio uh, in 2011 on an episode, the Intermountain West is a place that is disproportionately populated by middle-aged and aging white men, single, unattached, often unemployed with access to guns. And so, you know, that that's, you know, part of the audience you're talking to, right, in that room too, right? And so I'll, I'll delve into this really quick and we can get more thoughts from you because I, this is something we've, we've studied at Snowbrains. We've published a lot about this and I'm constantly studying. And so I read the article that you referenced in your, in your talk. That's by National Geographic and you should read it, our listeners. It's called Why Ski Towns Are Seeing More Suicides. And, uh, and and it really, the bullet points are, ac- there's seven here, access to firearms, rural IS isolation, which those two are pretty obvious, right? When you're in the middle of nowhere, you just don't have as much community, you don't have as much connectivity. There's obviously a lot of access to firearms in the West. Economic factors, so economic stressors like job insecurity, financial difficulties, which we all experience in the mountains. And we know all of our friends experience in the mountains. It's hard to keep a job up here and it's hard to have a job. It's hard to have a job that pays you enough is probably the bigger biggest factor. Substance abuse is huge. And I was ignorant to this because uh, I never liked drinking, but I had to drink a ton in college and it was awful. And then when I graduated, it was like, oh, I don't have to drink anymore. This is great. So I didn't really know about this, but my roommate, the first year I moved to North Lake Tahoe was dating a pro skier. And she told me, she's like, oh my gosh, I go to these parties. Everyone does cocaine. Everyone drinks too much. It's insane. So 
I, I digress. Substance abuse, obviously a problem uh, in, the, in the Mountain West. Cultural factors. So basically what you were referring to earlier, like it, it wouldn't be cool to seek mental, mental health care uh, in the macho culture, right? That would show weakness and we don't want to do that. So cultural factors are huge. Limited medical or limited health services, mental health services, that's obvious. It's If you have a mental health problem, there's really not anywhere to go. You'd have to go to a big city. And then geographic and environmental factors. And this blew my mind the most. It's not concrete yet in my mind, but there are studies suggesting that altitude is related to suicide rates, high altitude. And when I dug deeper on this, I found it was the neurotransmitter dopamine might be affected. So you might end up with lower levels of dopamine by living at high altitude, which could lead to depression, which could lead to suicide. But yeah, say more on this because I know that you have more to say. No, that was beautiful. I think that's a lot of risk factors, right? And it's a lot that we uphold. And I think that it's, yeah, the double-edged sword of like pursuing this. And I think we assume the anecdote for all of these things is just being like the sendiest skier on the hill. And we rarely talk about how that like sets you up for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about it and I think about everyone who's been in these ski films and like, where are they now? Like, what are kind of the support systems that we have in like keeping folks healthy for like the longevity of their career and their life? And I think there's sort of that instant gratification of, you know, it has to be now, it has to be this moment. Um, I would be really interested in, you know, digging deeper into physical health as well. I think like, yeah, I've had three knee surgeries, both of my shoulders are wrecked on top of the escalator instant cut. I've broken my back, (laughs) you know, like pain is real. I work in a PT clinic and you see sort of folks in chronic pain and how, how that affects your mental health. And so I think that our ski culture is like really responsible because they like pursue this dream and you watch these movies and there's sort of like this false hope that like separates you even more from like being able to admit you're struggling because everyone's having their best day always. And I think it affects everyone. And I think, yes, it like affects like white men a lot. And you see the suicide rates and then like the effects of that down the chain to like having abusive partners on women, you know, and like the, none of this talks about like the assault rates from, you know, men struggling with like mental health issues, like it trickles down. And then you see like white women being, mean and rude to like women of color and like gatekeeping and keeping that away. And so I think that like all of this is so interconnected and like we all face challenges from this culture and bringing it together to like heal that takes really like concerted efforts. Mm, And and where would you put social media in this equation? Yeah. Do you notice I didn't say talk once about social media in my whole talk? I did. And that's why I wanted to put you on the spot here. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Social media is so tough, I think, for sure. I think it's a really interesting tool. And yeah, there are times that I totally delete social media for my own like mental health and the sort of like instant gratification. And I think the other thing it does is you have to be performing at the top of your game 100% of the time. I think previously when we had the single annual ski movie, you had kind of this one moment of like high performance. And now it's like, if you don't do the coolest thing ever, every single week, that immediacy, you like lose your audience, like things die down. There's no time for rest. You have to outperform every season. You have to do something crazy in the winter, crazy in the spring, crazy in the summer. And so I think it has a lot of negative effects for sure. 
I am extremely guilty. I I will stand at the bottom of the mountain and think about, you know, do I want to do this or not? Do I need to get a shot or not? Like, how much would this help my social media or not? You know, it's it's crazy uh, how much it's infiltrated my behavior, our behavior, all of our behavior. It's it's really really prevalent. It's really interesting, and I'm so curious why why did you not include it in your talk, social media? I think people are really quick to hate on it. And I think they blame social media as the problem, but social media is just a tool. Mm -hmm. And all of these problems have existed before and will exist after it. And so again, coming back to culture, like this is culture that started, you know, in the, when like Protestants came to the United States in, you know, the 1400s and killed off of our indigenous population through like genocide like that is like the start of this it's not like social media and so it's a much bigger problem to crush and i think the people i see critique social media the most are the people i think who are like yeah like men in their 50s and 60s who are hating on the parts of social media that make skiing accessible, right? I think it has a lot of like, don't show where the good snow is and like get off your phones and you shouldn't share your experiences. And I think that in many ways, social media has also created a really cool opportunity for people who didn't have access through traditional media sources to share stories. And it has been one of the best ways I've gotten to connect with folks who are outside of my regular sphere and help me kind of like, bust down walls that have kept me like segregated from other cool folks you know i've used social media to like make amazing friends in pakistan and get to like ski with locals in pakistan this last spring and become incredibly good friends you know so i think it has a lot of the benefits but i think it's a reflection of the bigger culture not the cause of it i strongly dislike that gatekeeping and that exclusiveness because every time i get a message like that like hey stop blowing up the spot or whatever like that all I can think of is this person is literally saying, I want this to stay exclusive to me and my kind only. And I do not appreciate that. And I push back on that pretty hard. Um, and I do not let it affect my behavior moving forward. If anything, if those haters are listening right now, it just makes me do it more and harder. <laughs> hard as possible. Yeah. So, and it's interesting to reflect on like, how did you learn? You know, yes. because like I, yeah, it was on the U.S. ski team. Like I was so good at skiing and had no idea what I was doing in the backcountry. And people had to share that information with me and invite me along. And just because I had like certain credentials that like people saw me as like worthy, right? And that came from like my ski ability or my like, yeah, being on the U.S. ski team and having this like check mark. Um, it previously used to just be that you were like a dude and you were seen as capable, and so, yeah, I was given a really accelerated path into like gaining a lot of knowledge through mentorship. And nobody comes into these spaces 100% capable. Nobody is 100% self-taught or doesn't have, you know, like access to information. Like all of our knowledge gets passed down, which is beautiful and it should. So I think the like stigma around like I learned it from a friend versus like I learned it from like an online tool. Um it's interesting how we hold those two differently and how we think about like who deserves to be in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I totally, absolutely. I, the, the exclusion in the ski industry is very powerful and effective. Um, you know, I, I spend all my time in the Western U S almost, and it's just a bunch of white people, you know, we don't yeah. really have that. And, and there's so many cool ways to 
reach out. And I do want to talk about your Doug's, uh, your Coombs Outdoor, but I did want to do, I, I was just thinking uh, maybe one step back for our listeners, drawing a through line on the suicide belt problem is is pretty relatable if you spent time in the mountains or even if you know some mountain stereotypes because i think the through line if i could make it succinct is a you know usually a white man who has moved to the mountains from somewhere else so they basically have separated themselves from their community they are probably skiing very well at a high level and all the time full-on ski bum they probably don't have a real meaningful job maybe they're a you know, working in a restaurant or doing something that they personally think is probably below what they could have done um, as far as employment and meaning, meaningful employment goes. And then eventually they're getting older. They're in their 40s. They're in their 50s. Their body's broken down like the surgeries that you talked about. They're not as good at skiing anymore. They're maybe not getting as much joy of it anymore. Their dopamine levels are lower because you know they're not getting as much joy. Maybe the altitude has something to do with that. And they're not connected to the community. They're away from their family. They have rural isolation. They have access to firearms. And you can see kind of where this goes. And I know these people. And I could do a lot better job of reaching out to them and and seeing if if there's anything I can do to help or at least point them in the direction of some good resources. But uh, but is that approximately the through line that you've learned uh, about the, the Intermountain West suicide problem? Yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, and that's, you know, and, and, and that's not yeah. my ideology or thinking at all that that's, um, you know, what I've learned and read. And, and, and something you brought up in, in your talk, the rugged individualism is more valued than community and team. Uh, could you speak more to that? Because I see that too. Yeah, I think that it's true. And just like the American dream of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and we're super individualistic. The best thing you can do is take care of yourself. And just as you said, like, that's so isolating. And like community is so important, because like, we are all vulnerable, and we are all going to fail. And having that like community and team is so important. And I think if you look at skiing, you know, it's ends up being a really individualistic sport. And I'm so thankful to have had really good teams growing up, but that was painful on the US team, like fighting for your World Cup spots and having Mm -hmm. kind of like this individualism. And I think right now, like, trying to build that community mentality has been so important to me. Um, And it's cool. Like, I think even as a pro skier, most sponsors just want to sponsor me alone as an athlete. And I'm seeing that change because, you know, like Fisher and BCA have my back for this whole talk, you know, like, I think, again, finding partners who are willing to like invest in all parts of me. And they say like, yeah, you are going on a cool expedition. We're going to give your whole team the top gear, you know, like we're going to give your whole team education. Um, We're going to give your whole team this and like, yeah, your closest friends, we're going to bring them onto our team. You know, like this is beyond you. If you say this person is like doing the work, like, of course, we're going to invest in them. And so I think that like, as a pro skier, like being able to find your team is so important and your sponsors play such a big role in that. And so it's been, you know, I test my ski partners and see, you know, if they're willing to show their vulnerability, if they're willing to like work on these things. But I also test my sponsors in this as well. And I've just been really impressed in the last few years how they've shown up because yeah, it's like these big brands, these like big movies, like they control a lot of this narrative that's like put out there and, you know, they truly fund what gets like promoted and they're like big drivers of this culture so it's cool to see different brands and different like storytellers changing the industry 
and literally putting their like money behind like continued growth of like different ideals. I do want to say kudos to Fisher and kudos to BCA for supporting your talk and, and all this. So thanks to them for that. We need more of that. Yeah. I think this segues well too. And one of my next thoughts is backcountry culture. You know, we talked, we talked about at the beginning of the show, we put more value on dangerous traits than we do sort of on coming home and, and just being normal. And so we have this value in the West, you know, due to these reasons we've gotten into this, you know, pioneer culture but the the question that you know I'm super unclear on, and I bet you are too, is is this something we can change, or, or should, is this something we should even try to change? Can we change this backcountry culture, and how do we go about doing that? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think yes, we can change culture. Culture is made by people, and we are people. So changing culture, whether it's at your individual level of like who you spend time with and how you show up. Like that spreads to like your town and your community and that spreads to your region and your country. Like culture changes all the time. Like that's the beauty of culture. Um, but it takes intentional work and it takes like some dismantling of systems for sure. And then I think that like these dangerous things we do in the backcountry, I don't think we should look at them as negative. I think that they're beautiful and they are in a really important aspect of it as well. And I don't think we should be scared or intimidated of dangerous things and hard things because they're important. I think we just have to look at them in like a reasonable scale and it can't be every day, all day, the only reason why. Um, And I think that is like what balance looks like. Because I do think that like, if we, you know, dumb down everything we do, and we're afraid to take risks, we're gonna like live inside of bubbles. Um, And that can be like equally as harmful. So I think that it's more just looking at that intentional lens of like, what's authentic, and what like, is meaningful risk, rather than like risk that you take, because either you're trying to fill an unhealthy void in something else, or you're trying to like prove yourself or you're doing it not for yourself in the same reason. Why I'm having this podcast today and why you gave your talk, I think is part of this, right? We want to help change this backcountry culture. And as you said, culture changes, but it maybe is even more in depth than that. Culture always changes, right? There's, there's culture might hover in a spot for a minute or two, but in in general, it's just always changing. And I think already we've gained more vulnerability in, in the mountain culture. You know, you're seeing a lot of the videos and when I go to film festivals, there's always some cool films. Have you seen that? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Refreshing. And so I think, you know, even little steps like what we're doing today, I think helps bringing awareness to this, you know, we don't need that macho, you know, you're a wimp, I'm tough culture. What we need is vulnerability, openness, and the ability to connect with people and know that it's okay to be who you are. And and it's okay to, you know, have feelings of being afraid. It's okay to be tired. You know, I, I've, I've, you know, grown up a lot of my adult life in a mountain guide culture and oh my gosh, like, you do not say that you're tired. Like you do not say that you're afraid. There's all these things. And, and I'm slowly seeing that change. You know, I have a good buddy named Michael who guides in uh, Jackson and he's just got fully certified. And I had a great talk with him. And he's like, you know, the old guard is 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 like aging out and that stuff is going away. You know, I don't think we need to haze people. I don't think we need to do all this stuff. I think we could just be cool and, and be open and be vulnerable. And I think that's where real strength 
and real power lies. And I know because I, you know, just seeing you as an example, you can be a badass and be vulnerable. They are not mutually exclusive. They actually go together really well because people who are super badass and are very vulnerable, they, I think, are regarded in the highest echelons of our society. And people kind of think of them as unicorns, but I don't think we need that anymore. I think that it can be shown as a beacon, an example that we could all be a little more like, because I think that's where we're, I hope that's where we're going in our culture because other cultures have gone there already and, and it looks good. Hell yeah, I agree. Like I think <laughs> I'm the most positive I've ever been about skiing in this moment like i think i have more fun skiing than i've ever had skiing and i like love to see the culture shifts you know um i have two good friends sophia Harmio and junior rodriguez who've started a film festival called mountains of color and it premiered this year in jackson and it was the most fun film festival i've ever gone to you know i got to go learn some ice climbing skills at the all in ice festival. And it was like the most welcoming, inclusive, fun ice festival I could ever imagine. Yes. And it's so cool. Like, I don't know if you've seen the film, um, the black country journal by Mallory Duncan, but like, how bored are you of ski movies? Like I am so <laughs> bored <laughs> of ski movies uh-huh. and like his like use of jazz and doing it all in black and white, like was the first time in years that I've been like, whoa, I'm going to watch this film again and again. And I've been so bored of ski films. Um, so it's here and it's really cool. I think like, yeah, like Connor Ryan and like Spirit of the Peaks, like again, like way more interesting um, film. And so I'm psyched and I think we're making those changes. I love it. And you're a big part of that in my mind uh, in your community. So tell us more about the, the Coombs found, or sorry, it's called Coombs Outdoors, correct? Tell us what that is and what you do there. Yeah, Coombs is amazing. At the heart, it is a organization that helps get kids outside to ski. And it's really cool. And they're very purposeful in trying to break down barriers to access. And that's awesome because there's a lot of barriers that make it hard to get on skis. Um, Not only just financial, but I think, yeah, cultural aspects. And it's cool. And I love it. I think I love coaching. And I'm so thankful to the coaches I've had in my life. And they've been so impactful to me. And so I knew I always wanted to coach because it helps me reframe all of these lessons that you're talking about. It holds you pretty accountable when once a week you show up and like put them to use. And when I, you know, am feeling down about myself because I failed off some big peak or see someone land a trick that I was too scared to try and I show up on Sunday and I ski with kids and I talk about having fun on the mountains, it like reinforces that. And so, um, again, I ski a lot with Coombs for my own mental health because it puts every other part of being a pro skier into perspective. And I think that those moments when I can just remember that like my high school girls like me as a person and they don't really care that much about my skiing, um, it helps so much. And I think, yeah, that like giving back and that mentorship is just one of the fastest paths to authentic meaning that we like forget is something we can just do and that we can train. Um, And a lot of my mentorship comes, you know, outside of just sort of like kids as well. I love like getting to take people on their first tours in like Teton National Park. And you kind of get this moment where you've skied something 
a hundred times and you're pretty bored of it and you get to see it through someone else's eyes and it reinvigorates that spark and it like helps you remember like why skiing is meaningful. Um, cause it's true. Like we just desensitize to stuff and habituate. It's such so natural that the first time you do something, it's like awe inspiring and life changing. And as you repeat it, it becomes slightly mundane. We have to kind of trick ourselves into finding joy as much as we can. Or you have to scare yourself or do something at the highest level, uh, totally. the highest level for it to be meaningful, where then you take somebody new out there and they think it's rad that you're just there. And then you can go back and re-experience that. I get that a lot, especially traveling places I've been before. And I love what you said too. I experience that all the time that people that you really have a good connection with that, you know, and love you show you like, check out my video of me skiing rad. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And they don't even watch the whole thing. They're like, wow, they really don't give a shit about my skiing. Great. They just actually like me. All right. Good. Totally. Like, yeah, it's yeah, the you're best. for a second. You're like, Oh, and they're like, Oh wait, this is a good thing. Um, yeah. I really like that. And I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I, I really like that you do that. I am huge. You know, my, my entire podcast season last season, was just based on diversity uh, and you know doing you know, only women and people of color and a really cool group called uh, Vominos Outdoors, which is similar to the Coombs Foundation, in, but they're in Bend, Oregon. Uh, and they're just, just really cool. They, they kind of focus on getting anybody, but Latinos specifically, yeah. into the mountain. But I also think, you know, coming back to something all of us skiers and, and, and snowboarders in the back end you can relate to that you mentioned in your talk just then was bailing. You know, you feel bad that you bailed. Tell me about your friend's bail cake strategy because this is the <laughs> coolest thing i've ever heard of for bailing because i effing hate bailing everybody hates bailing it's nobody likes to quote unquote fail but this is such a great strategy so tell us about the bail cake strategy yeah i think reframing bailing is so important right because um i used to think that i had to be strong enough to push through things and i've learned you actually have to be way stronger to bail um, and it's a much harder skill than we give it credit for. And finding different friends who have strategies to help them find joy in bailing has been a really cool learning experience. And, and maybe, sorry, let's tell let's tell the people what, what is bailing because maybe we're not defining it well. Yeah, I think bailing is um, you've committed to show up and you're in the moment. And so you're, it's not bailing like the weekend before, you know, ghosting your friend. It's like you're in the moment, you're doing um, the path, the objective that you're off to go ski or snowboard or snowmobile. And you just decide to turn around and you decide to come up short and to not do the thing that you are already in the process of doing, which is maybe the hardest thing out there. It's incredibly difficult to talk yourself out of doing something that you really want to do and to go home. And so Lily Crass lives in the Tetons and is a fabulous, fabulous cook. She has one of the coolest books out there, uh, Beyond Skid, which is a cookbook for ski bums. But she has a tradition of keeping ingredients on hand and she makes a special cake on the days that she has to bail. And she never makes this cake otherwise. Um, but it helps her reframe the days where you're all excited to go charge and at 10 o'clock, you're turning around and you're at home kind of defeated and uh, instead investing in a different kind of joy. And yeah, like celebrating the fact that you were like badass enough to like say no and come home that day is so cool. It's beyond cool. And and I think it's so transferable to all of us because, you know, I don't know how to cook or, or make a cake, but I could have like my favorite beer or my favorite food or I could go to my favorite restaurant, you know, and like you don't do this unless you bail. So it's it's a cool way of incentivizing turning around and being safe. 
is the is the bottom line is what the bail cake strategy is. And I think the bail cake strategy is something that I'm gonna start pushing to avalanche professionals that I know because I think it's not ever, I've just never heard of it. And it, it's such a great idea. And I think I'm going to start doing this too. And with me, it would maybe be like a, a restaurant or a certain place to go get food. Yeah. Oh, it's like something I love, love, love. Or like, like the most, yeah. I love the idea of a bail beer, bail yeah, restaurant. I'm not going to do a bail it. Massage. I only drink that beer if I bail, you know? And so it's actually yeah. a reward, you know, because like you need to bail that many times in a year. So like, like, wow, you know, only, you know, 10 times a year or less do I get to have that beer or get that food or, or have that snack. Or maybe it's that awesome, like a, like a, a cookie or something like a, you know, that's not exactly good for you, but delicious. Um, so I, I really appreciate you pushing that idea out there yeah. because it's very intelligent and and honestly, i keep track of my bales like i'm such a pragmatic nerd i keep a lot of data because i think one thing is it's easy to tell us ourselves these stories like oh yeah i'm really good at bailing or i don't ski an avalanche terrain like that much so i keep kind of like a journal of just who i ski with every day because it's really fun to be like oh my gosh remember that day that we skied this with so and so and the snow was really good so i just write that down like every day that i ski what i skied who i skied with but then I have all this data. And so I go in and I look at like, what percentage of the time am I skiing avalanche terrain? Is it 100% of the time? Is it 0% of the time? Where does it fall? Is it 30% of the time? And then I also calculate how often I bail because I'm trying to make the best decisions that I can before I go into the mountains. But I want to have a pretty high bail rate. Like I really want to like be able to look at that number and be like, whoa, I haven't bailed once this year. That's crazy. Like is it just green light conditions? Like, am I just nailing it? Or like, what about this has been going on? Or I failed 15 out of 15 times. Why am I choosing these like stupid objectives? And like, maybe I should like pick where I'm going better and not just set myself up for failure. So it's kind of interesting. I think that when you like hold yourself accountable and like actually like analyze what you do, you could like come up with some pretty interesting like conclusions about yourself. It's nice to speak to another data geek. Because I keep track of every day I skied, who I skied with, where I skied, what we did or what we didn't do. Um, but I haven't actually analyzed it in that way. I haven't gone through and then pulled that data out, which I could, but it would be a lot of work. Um, so can you share with us, you know, if you have these numbers, what percentage of the time might you be in avalanche terrain and what has been your bail rate? Yeah, it'll tie in very much to the end of my talk in which I talk about seasonality. Uh-huh. And so... Some of this data collection came from just sitting on the couch, you know, and being like, huh, I'm going to look at avalanche incidents in Jackson. I primarily ski in Jackson. And so we have kind of, you know, our snowpack that starts with like a little bit more persistent slabs in the beginning of the season. And then, you know, love the fact that it snows here a lot. So those get buried and they tend to heal. And then you have a spring snowpack. So it's different than, say, you know, like more like maritime snowpack. But I kind of looked at it and saw so many like human triggered avalanches in kind of like December and January. And then that number of like people getting caught in avalanches, it still definitely happens come the end of February, March, April really starts to decrease. And so I kind of started to plan out my seasons of being like, okay, like I don't need to be taking my biggest risks in January when the snowpack is like the most unstable. Um, And it kind of came to fruition where I was here and had like a really cool season where I got to ski a lot of like my dream lines in January. And then the next season, there was a weird persistent slab problem. And I decided not to ski many 
like any avalanche train all of January. And I was like, is that real? Am I, am I not skiing a single avalanche, you know, piece of avalanche train? And I was like, that's crazy. Hopefully February is better. And then we got so much snow in February and it was amazing powder skiing. But I was also like, whoa, that was like zero times in February. And then come March. And I sort of was like, wow, like, am I tough enough to not ski, you know, any avalanche train in December, January, and February? And the truth was like, yeah, I like can. Like, I'm okay with that. They had an amazing like March and April. So it really depends on the year. Um, I think around, I'm at around like 35% of my total ski days are in what I would consider avalanche terrain. And it's tough. It's tough to categorize that because some days are so consequential, like skiing the Grand Teton. And it's really easy to be like, yes, that is like avalanche <laughs> terrain. And then sometimes skiing, you know, like a 35 degree slope that you might not like think of as avalanche terrain, that like kind of classification has really helped me. Because the other thing I see is that when you're taking like the biggest, you know, most challenging day of your life, like you're really purposeful and you're really like calculated and seeking those moments. And it's often the days where you sort of like habituate how dangerous something is and have that like familiarity heuristic going on that you're sort of like, ah, it's nothing that I see a lot of mistakes. So kind of keeping track of like, is this avalanche train? Yes or no has helped me stay a little bit more accountable, but there'll be times where I ski like zero in January and like a hundred percent in like March and April and you'll be like, whoa, everything just like lined up. Um, and I think when those special weather windows come in and when things line up, like you really can like ski the things you want to ski. You just have to be patient and you have to, you know, look for the right times of year to be doing the skiing you want to do. Excellent advice. I have nothing to add. That was terrific. Uh, I actually personally consider if I go backcountry skiing, it's, it's avalanche terrain. Um, mm. in my, you know, everybody is going to look at it differently, but in my ideology, because if I'm inbounds, you know, I've, I've been in, in inbounds avalanches, you know, including yeah. last season. So, in well. time, so, um, so that's, uh, you know, it's not like you're safe, but you're safer. And, uh, because I don't generally, if I, if I'm backcountry skiing and I'm having fun, it's avalanche terrain, right? Cause mm. if I'm having fun, it means, you know, that's steep and I'm, ha- and I'm going fast. Uh, but yeah, I think that you know, avalanche train and all that, you, everything you said there was very well said. And I think the other side of it, of this, the human factor is something that you called zoomies control. Uh, and I, I really want to get into this because I thought this was a cool thing. Cause I think when, when I think of zoomies, I just see stuff online. I just learned zoomies. It's like a puppy or a baby goat, like running in circles because that's what baby goats do. Um, and so, so how do you define zoomies to start? Yes. I love it. I definitely am a puppy for sure. And I think I define zoomies as sort of like this authentic energy that gets like pent up if you don't release it. And you want to just like run around and like try hard and like get after it. And it's so authentic and it's so beautiful and it's so fun um, that I think that is like a lot of the joy we see in skiing. And truthfully, yeah, I get anxious. I get kind of like depressed if I can't release it. Um, and it's something I struggle with. And so for me, I've been able to look at like different types of risk factors and trying hard and like getting that like authentic fulfillment of like pushing your limits, I think doesn't always have to be tied to like steep avalanche terrain. Sometimes I get it from like doing sprints or, you know, like really intense exercise that like release is really important. Um, jumping holds a really special place in my heart and it's crazy. You can go through a backflips on a 20 degree slope with a jump 
And none of that has any sort of like avalanche risk associated with it. It might have other types of risk. Like you might catch a tip and, you know, dislocate your shoulder or like hurt yourself. Like jumping is not immune for risk. But, you know, I have had so many friends die in avalanches. I've had one friend, you know, become so seriously injured in jumping. I guess I've had more than that. But, you know, the the um, consequences are still very different in my mind, and especially if you're jumping into powder. So I'll go build, you know, a low angle kicker and like go through some backflips and like that authentic flow state that like healing bliss of like being so present releases those zoomies in a way that isn't just tied to having to go ski really dangerous terrain. Mm -hmm. You had three bullet points that I thought were really powerful. And so I'd love to go through them. And the first one was, you said, would I do it if no one knew about it? Mm. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I think like moving from zoomies and sort of asking like, am I an adrenaline junkie? (laughs) You know, like, why do I love this? Why do I pursue it? Um, You know, I think like having a framework from saying like, I am stepping into meaningful risk and it is risky and I'm not going to pretend that it's not. And, you know, I'm not going to like dumb it down that I'm not taking risks, that it's really important to have a framework for me to look at that. And as you mentioned, I kind of use three ideas to do that. And yeah, the first one is, would I do it if nobody knew about it? And this has been a really big game changer because I think as you tie back to like social media and for me, like film projects and like a lot of my income being tied to being a professional skier, I've realized that there are some things I want to do that I'm not going to make it a project because I want to do it so authentically, I don't want any other factors to interfere with that. And so there are things I go ski that I don't post about. And there are things I go ski that I don't take photos or promote through my sponsors, and they truly are authentic. Um, And so it's always a question of like, am I doing this to like, do it for social media or like prove to someone that I'm capable or like, is this for me? Because it's really important to like have that authentic love. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I yeah. love that you also said uh, it's all about fulfillment, not a status symbol, which you mm. know, is exactly what you're saying. You know, you go and do these things without posting about it because it's not about the status symbol of it. It's about the personal fulfillment for you. Uh, and then I yeah. like your second bullet point was if successful, would I do it again? Yeah. And this one came out of the escalator incident. So had <laughs> I ski down that escalator, I would have never done it again. There were so many ways that that could have gone wrong and it didn't like align with any of my other goals. Like I don't want things to be a Hail Mary, you know, I don't want to try some cliff that I'm just hoping I can stomp once. I want to be able to like show up and do things repeatedly because if I can do it repeatedly, it's like well within my skill set for sure. And so I think that also is true of like certain mountain objectives. Like I don't want to just hold my breath and like hope that Serac holds. Like I want to choose a route that like if conditions aligned, I could do it like again and again. And it was like in my skill set and in like a safety margin that's repeatable. I really like that. And I'm going to adopt that because I need, Mm. right. It's a lot of times that's what we do. You know, it's like, well, I think I can pull it off once you got your, get your phone out, get a clip of this and we'll make it appear like it's something I can do all the time. Um, yeah. I think a lot of us are guilty of that, but it, it's much better. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why, but I think of Chris Ben Chetler. I really like his style, how mm. 
And I think he's going to age really well because he's always looking for transitions and smooth things and stuff that he can do again and again and again. And yeah, I'm trying to get more like that. And I need, I'm going to tattoo this on my forehead. Um, <laughs> do you have a story? Like, like, yeah, like what sticks out as one of those moments where you're like, I'm just going to try this one. You know, I don't know if I have a great story right off the top of my head, but I think I, it's just, you know, a, a pattern of behavior maybe for me. And, uh, and that something's like, Hey, you know, I think I can pull this off this instant one time, maybe, uh, but the consequences are high. And, you know, especially being a Palisades Tahoe skier, you know, there's a lot of stupid stuff that mm. we see there, you know, and it's all this like micro extreme, right? Like nothing's big there, but it's consequential and it's boiled down. So, you know, it, it gives an accessibility that you don't get a lot in other places. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wish I could pull up a great story for you. I know I yeah. have, uh, but, uh, but yeah, but I think, you know, maybe more, more of a vulnerable exposure would be to say that I've done it a lot. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm 45 years old right now. I don't need to do that anymore. You know, I think that I, I'm getting better about doing the things that I think I can repeat again and again. And I didn't have that top of mind. It wasn't a conscious idea or a thought. So, but now it is yeah. because of you. And I so, feel that way, like the ski cutting a little bit. Like if I'm going to ski this line, like would I ski cut it every time I skied it and mm-hmm. being like, whoa, no, like this is just a tool to help me when I like got to get out of bad situations. You know, I think that way of being yeah i don't know that's the one that jumps out to me that i see a lot of like i don't want to use ski cutting every day to like justify i want to use it you know like i think it's interesting so i'm not going to ski cut this once to assume that like now i can ski it all the time yeah it's scary it's crazy yeah and and it's why i think it's so good to talk about all this stuff because i think we all can relate to it in some way shape or form in some aspect of our lives and your third bullet point uh, which I think is very neat too, is what are the most ideal circumstances possible? And is this the moment? And you kind of had a cool story about skiing the Grand Teton, I think, with this one. Yeah. So I think that like when you ask yourself this question, you start to see things align, right? You're like, okay, it's like pretty stable conditions. Like it's a right side up snowpack. Like you can kind of answer these questions. Um, it's not crazy firm, you know, like if you're skiing in the spring like conditions have turned to corn and so if you have this sort of like ideal in your mind it's easier to see when things like vary from that and you're like is this the best conditions I could do this in and be like no and be like ah maybe it's not the day to do it then and so for me the story was yeah skiing the Grand Teton which is you know something again I feel like is really within my skill set and so we had climbed it on this absolutely beautiful May day and it was bluebird and stunning. And we got up top and it never softened. It oh. was so bulletproof. Oh. And I love icy slopes, you know, like I feel really good about my edges and have skied a lot of icy bumps in my day. And so I felt comfortable, like it felt repeatable. I felt like I could do that run, you know, 10 out of 10 times. Um, but it failed this rule about conditions. And I think that it's so important because to me, conditions are always the crux. It's never your ability because we don't control conditions and it's outside of ourselves. And so once you let go of the idea that like, I'm not capable enough and you can say like the conditions aren't ideal enough, it's really like freeing and you're not trying to prove yourself better than the mountains. You're trying to be like invited into like special days in the mountains. And just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do it. 
because that's how you find longevity. Just because I can ski cut something, just because I can out ski it if it slides, like those are all like trying to prove your abilities are greater than the mountains rather than asking the mountains, like, is this the best ideal conditions? to like do something like is this the gifted day because just as you kind of mentioned like you're 45 I'm 33 like some of my best ski friends are like in their like 50s and 60s and like I still feel like a baby in this you know I've been a backcountry skier for six years and I've gotten to ski so many cool things in perfect conditions imagine how many days are going to align in a 20 30 year career versus feeling like I have a week to get this done I'm just going to send it because like I'm here now. I think that like that longevity is so important. In it for the long game. In it for the long game. Yeah. Please talk to me about another idea from your talk that is the slow progressive curve. Yeah. The slow progressive curve for me came out of this idea that I want to enjoy every little bit of growth I have. And so I think that progression is a really special kind of meaning for me. And it's one that probably gives me the most joy outside of community, right? I think I hold two of those. Like I love the people I spend time with and I love getting better at things. Like how cool is that, that we get to like learn and grow. And progression has this sort of double edged sword because I think back to like the like capitalistic mindset of like endless growth. I always have to do something bigger, better, faster. And so hanging out in Jackson, getting to be a noob, I had a lot of friends kind of in the same boat and I would watch people like skip steps and I would see them sort of like miss out on the joy of getting to like slowly learn new things. Um, This came out in climbing and unfortunately I had to cut this from my talk because I didn't have enough time, but I had some friends in climbing that we were all learning how to rock climb together. And I had spent a lot of time in skiing, but very like little time as a climber. And um, one of my friends started alpine trad climbing before they had ever even led a trad climb on like a crag or had, you know, followed two of these alpine trads like as a follower before they like became a leader. And for me, I was sort of like, whoa, like you're missing all of this joy. If you do your first trad leads in the Alpine, like now when you come back and you do something at a crag, it's going to be like meaningless. Like (laughs) you're going to miss that like moment of like joy that you get from like that breakthrough because you like skipped all these steps. And so learning to take things slowly has been so important. And again, I think like as a mogul skier, it's cool to get to look back and be like, dang, I started seeing moguls when I was six. And I loved every moment of it until I left it in as like at 27. Like that is like 21 years of learning and growing. Like I want that same approach in the backcountry because there's sort of endless time to learn all of these things. We don't have to become a proficient professional in two years because that's how you burn out. And if you're only like searching for that high of progression, you're going to eventually like have to go through all of the different things and keep looking for that thrill. And I think, again, it takes us back to like that suicide rate of when you're in your 40s, you know, you're going to have peaked and like found all of the meaning you can find in progression and be left with like sort of this empty void. Yeah. and, and, And forecasting a future of just decline only. And it dovetails really well with what you were just talking about before. You know, you could, you're 33 and you see your buddies are 55 and you think, oh man, 20 more years of like awesome peaks and perfect conditions if I'm just patient. 
which is segues well into your next point uh, for your in the long game part of your talk, where you say, choose your days to pursue meaningful risk. Definitely. Because, yeah, those days exist. The mountains gift us stable days with soft snow, with beautiful light, and like things line up. They really, really happen, but they don't happen all the time. And they might not even happen in a season. And so I think the bigger we set our goals, the longer perspective we have to take. And I think this is the hardest and most humbling part about the backcountry is that conditions are just out of our control. And so the best way to align with good conditions is to give yourself a really big scale of time. And I think in this like go, go, go society, we expect instant gratification. You know, you're going to fly across the world to like hit primo conditions in Chamonix for a weekend. Like it could be storming, like every lift might be closed, you know? Um, And so I think that like dedication and like giving yourself really big timelines is how you're able to go ahead and like pursue really meaningful days and like big objectives rather than like cramming them in and like forcing them to happen. I love that. And and I actually didn't research this very well, but you mentioned braiding sweetgrass book. And it just made me think of it when you said the word gift, because you were talking about in this book, they talk about the gift economy versus feeling entitled. And uh, I did want to just on a personal note, I wanted to hear more about this. Yeah. Ooh, you should totally read this book. It's one of I'm my all time on- favorite books. Okay. Yeah. It's by um, an indigenous author, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she's incredible. She's super cool. Um, She has um, a lot of like blended background as both like an indigenous woman and like a really high level like ecologist scientist and her ability to kind of write about reframing the way we see nature has just been one of like the most beautiful books I've ever read and really taken a lot from it. But through that, it really made me think about, yeah, like having a partnership with the mountains and how they can like gift us these special days versus like the entitlement of like, I deserve to see this right now. Like I deserve this moment. Like I put so much money, I put so much time. Like how come the mountains aren't like giving me perfect conditions and I'm going to like take it anyways. I'm still going to go for it. And being like, whoa, those are the moments that you get yourself super in trouble when you feel like you deserve it because none of us deserve it, right? Like all of us are just like here to accept these gifts and to like get to be like partners in the mountain rather than like conquering them and like proving that like I'm so tough, I can handle like whatever they throw at me. Um, it's how you get yourself in trouble. I think that the overall idea is, you know, our backcountry culture could use a change that we could yeah. do better. And I think we could help this change could help us be more open, be more vulnerable. I think it could help us stay out of avalanches. I think it could help our suicide rates. I think it could help us all. And I think it will be a positive feedback loop. And I think it'll be generational, right? Because people will just, Mm. kids will just grow up with this. Um, Like, this is just how you behave. You're open, you're vulnerable. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, do what we can to be safe out there. Uh, let's let's get let's eradicate the suicide problem, and I think that the uh, the future of the Mountain West is going to be more open, more diverse, and just a better place to be, uh, especially yeah. mentally. And I very much look forward to that. And that's why we had this talk today. Yeah, this is all I've got for you today, Sophia. But if you have any other thoughts you'd like to add, especially I cued you a little bit there, please do here at the end of the show. 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Well, I always like to get to hear your story. So I think like coming from this talk, like where did you see yourself the most? Like what really like stuck with you if you had to to pick one thing from the talk? You know, I, I think without using my brain at all, my gut reaction is how can I, and I know it sounds selfish, be be safer. And I guess I want to include my partners in that. I was like, what, what decisions am I making? Cause I know I have that social media problem. I have the macho problem. You know, I, I have these, these same issues. I push myself to achievement as I have four or five core values and achievement mm-hmm. is one of them. And it can totally, what are the other ones? I know uh, achievement, independence, adventure, and friends and family is mm-hmm. are like really important to me. And I know, I know there's some overlap there. Right. But, uh, but yeah, being independent also can, you know, play into these heuristics, you know, give me, getting me, you know, maybe overconfident or you know, me and the idea, the mentality of I can do it. You know, I'm, I'm, I can, I can make these decisions on my own. And, uh, and then adventure, obviously, like you and I both share that one. And I think we both share friends and family, but, uh, but yeah, but I, I think for me personally, yeah, achievement can get me into trouble because, you know, like you talked about, it's hard to bail when you have this goal and you really want to achieve it. And I do end up in these cycles where I'm, you know, for example, when I was in uh, Patagonia this summer, uh, I think we, we probably skied 40 or 50 backcountry days. It was a big year. And I think we bailed once, you know, mm-hmm. and we always talked about it, but you know, how much of that was luck that we got away with it and how much of that was, you know, skill and or good decision-making. Um, you yeah. know, only, only the universe can decide, but, uh, but I do, that's the other thing that stuck with me. I want to look at my numbers and I want to see what is my bail rate. It's not high enough. And I, that, that's a cool thing to say. I want to raise my bail rate. Um, so maybe that would be yeah. uh, where I'm, you know, floundering to get to, but maybe that would be the conclusion, uh, to answer yeah. your question. I think I want to increase my bail rate and I want to study that more. And what I think is crazy back into this like long per long term perspective of like you were probably really bummed to bail, right? Like oh, even yeah. that one bail was probably hard. But like, how do you feel now, right? Like, oh. are you crushing? Like, do you cry when you like think about that day? Like, no, and you didn't get to do it. No, it's pretty ephemeral, and and, and I think the 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 successes last longer, which maybe is bad too, because that reinforces, you know, reinforces you wanting to go back out and do it again or, or take those kind of risks again. But yeah, exactly. I can't, you don't even remember some of your bails. You're like, yeah, I skied that peak. And then when you really think about it, you're like, no, we actually didn't. We were there, uh, but we turned around, you know, we didn't actually ski that. So I think that you're right. It doesn't cause lasting harm in any way, shape or form. I'm going to ask you a little bit about your own wake up calls. Like, because I think storytelling is so important as well. And we can learn from each other's like mistakes. Like, do you feel like you have some wake up calls that like brought you into like the vulnerability around these discussions? That's a great question. You know, really the vulnerability came in for me when I met my, my current partner, uh, Erica, Mm. she basically was like, Hey, here, read this book called attached. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's fantastic uh, about attachment styles. And then from there, it was just like, you know, throwing gas on the fire. It was just sort of like in gorging myself with all this information. I just loved it because I think it was stuff that I'd always struggled with and that I'd always, I think I've been more on the side of vulnerability than a lot of my contemporaries in the ski industry. And I was looked down on or think that thought of as soft for that or or kicked out of the club for that. Um, And so 
really that was kind of my wake up call. It was just doing the work and getting into the learning. And how do you, how does that happen? You kind of have to have somebody say like, Hey, read this book or, Hey, you know, work on this thing. And to be honest, I rode the chairlift to park city with a kid who is 17 years old. And I just said to him, listen, man, I know this is weird from a stranger, but at your age, I would have killed to have read this book called attached because you can learn about people's attachment styles, whether they're insecure, anxious, or avoidant, and then you can kind of predict their behavior. You can learn what you are, then you can learn how you match with others, and then you can figure out how you and other people can do the work to, you know, get more secure. And oh man, it's just I would have killed to have read that stuff then. So I know it's maybe yeah. not, not as not as good of a story as your escalator story, but uh, but that was kind of my cool wake up call. And uh, and the reason it was a wake up call was I think I actually some naturally innately had some of those characteristics. I was a bit more vulnerable. Um, and maybe because I somehow have a weird innate confidence. So when people were like, you're lame, I, I could like in my brain going, no, I'm not. You know, where I think some people, when people say you're lame, you're like, damn it, I am, you know? And and of course that can affect me too. But, um, but doing these learnings and, you know, I'm kind of, I need to be a little more blunt about it with our listeners and, and, and readers on the website. But, uh, but I'm slowly trying to trickle hints into, you know, these books and these learnings and these ways of seeing the world that I think are going to make this you know, because I really focus on our culture, as as you may be doing as well. But these ways that we're really going to make this backcountry and this mountain culture better. Yeah, Ooh, I love that. I mean, it's cool even just to think about like, what's my attachment style to skiing? Like, when Ooh. am I avoidant, right? Like, when am I like, unless I can win, I'm not even going to try, you know, <laughs> or like, um, yeah, when am I like insecure and like, just keep showing up and repeating the same thing, like again and again. And like, yeah, when do I feel like secure in skiing? I don't know. I joke that I like, I need that for like my sponsors sometimes. Cause I'm like, they, some, yeah, like thankful again to have like Fisher and VCA as like just incredible backers, but it's interesting to like, look at how you get attached to to different things. It is. Yeah. And, you know, we could, we, we, that's a whole other podcast talking about addiction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, totally. told people, I've told people like, yeah, addiction runs in my family, but you know, luckily I didn't get that. And they're like, what? Like you are like the worst addicted person. I know it's just happens to be skiing. It's like, oh yeah. Light bulb. Thanks for that. You know, and then there's yeah. a, a whole new can of worms and a whole new learning about myself. And, and, you know, maybe that's one of the last things I would share from my end on this is, it's really neat getting older because you get to know yourself, which is really mm. an odd statement that young people probably won't relate to, but I think older folks will resonate with. Cause I, I remember, you know, in my thirties starting to learn like who I was like, well, I'm different. And why am I different? Like, Oh, cause of these things. And, and yeah, other people aren't like this and, and that's okay. And, and I can lean into that and, and all that. So that's an abstract you know, thing to say, but it's very true. And I think that most people, yeah, find that true as well as they as they gain in years yeah amazing. <laughs> I love that um and then yeah I think my last kind of question for you is um at the end of my talk um I decided to be brave and speak up on Israel and Palestine and that conflict um yeah. and I think for me we can talk about meaning all day but we have to do things that are meaningful and so this is a hard question to pass to you here at the end but I guess like if there was a cause or, you know, something that like the mountains have taught you to be brave and stand up for, like, how would you want like this community that's listening to your podcast to like show up for you? 
Is there any, you know, cause near and dear to your heart that, you know, sometimes feels like you've learned through skiing or learned to be brave through skiing, but maybe not directly related that you'd like this community to like learn and share alongside you? Yeah. And I I see you're kind of leading me down a path that I might not jump on, but what I, what I, my, my, again, my gut reaction is biodiversity. And I know that's like, Mm. can be lame in some circles because most all people's activism wants to be around humans and what humans are doing. And, uh, and I know that humans are important and that we have a lot of suffering that we could, we could cancel, but I feel personally, I feel greater pain and empathy for biodiversity and animals and plants in general. Uh, and so that is an odd answer, but, um, and I don't have any you know exact funds that I would know, but I know like the world wildlife federation and there's lots of really great in, environmental places, but my, champion for this thought process and strategy and mentality is David Attenborough. Uh, and I'm cool. sure you know who he is. He basically is the, the the voice of nature, right? He's a guy that does all the BBC documentaries on animals and plants. And yeah, that's where my heart really lies is I am a bleeding heart for plants and animals and biodiversity and us losing that and losing those. And uh, while I know that human problems are important too, like that's what pulls my heartstrings the most. Yeah. Well, then you definitely have to read Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah, okay, I think it's like a really, really beautiful, yeah. Like recognition of, yeah, the like non-human life on this world as well. So oh, man, um, man. cool. So important and so profound. And I guess the last goopy thing I would share is I love that you have the Zoomies reference. And I had a dream last night where a puppy was doing Zoomies and it licked me in my mouth. It was so weird and gross oh. and funny. And so I ripped my head the other way, but it was zooming so fast. It licked inside my mouth on the other side too. And I woke up <laughs> like chest heaving laughs, uh, which I think is a gift. And uh, your, your zoomies uh, thought made me think of it. Uh, but yeah, mostly I just want to say thank you so much for your time and energy. Thank you for what you're doing. And I'm excited to f- continue to follow what you're doing. And I want to ski with you. So let's figure out a time. I'm in Jackson. I, you know, I run a room there every winter. Yeah. Uh, I want to figure out a time. So I'll reach out when I, when I get there and, and, and uh, see if we have time to ski. That'd be fabulous. And yeah, I like love inviting people here. Um, Cause again, it's like these, it's so special to get to spend time with people. So for sure. can't wait to, to get out on the skin track with you and hopefully conditions align. And if not, you know, getting to spend these few hours just talking with you has been really special to me. So thank you so much for your support and reaching out and can't wait to continue to grow our friendship. Wow. Well, okay. That's the best ending of the show we've had. Uh, so we'll end it there. Thank you so much. Have a great rest Woo! of the day. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Snow Brains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snow Brains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at snowbrains. This episode of the Snow Brains podcast was edited by Jared White and Ben Hout. Music by Chad Crouch. I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.